0: I want to express my thanks to Thomas Wynn for inviting me to be a part of your worship service today, for being able to come and to preach the Word of God and share in the singing. Thank you very much, Thomas, for your hospitality uh, for the last evening uh, and for the uh, uh, sort of self-justifying display of uh, passion of watching your favorite team play. I, I feel the same way, and so uh, I'll have to tell my wife that I'm not the only one who feels that way. So. But we're here to look at the Word of God and to think about the Lord Jesus Christ and His provision for us. If you wish a title to the message, it would be, "Oh, Perfect Redemption. And the text is from Hebrews chapter 1. I'll be <coughs> read verses 1 through 4. And then expand the understanding of it as we look at other parts of the chapter and other parts of the book of Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the powerful and clear witness we have to your salvation that is wrought for us in the person of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has indeed made purification for sins and has revealed your plan and yourself and your glory to us in a way that could not be done by any other person. We pray that you would tune our hearts as you have already tuned them to sing your praise. Tune our hearts to hear your word. and We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The writer of Hebrews is introducing us to the argument that he's going to make throughout the text in which he is saying how the Lord Jesus Christ has put an end to all of those things that were merely ceremonial, they were merely prophetic of His coming, because He has fulfilled all of them. And so the entire ceremonial law that was given in order to lead us to Christ and show the necessity of a sacrifice that was to be given, none, none of these things could wash away sins. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But Christ has put an end to all of that once and for all by the perfect sacrifice of Himself, And so he introduces us to this kind of argument by showing that the revelation that he has already given of this was a partial revelation. It was true, but it was partial. It came in many ways. But the revelation that we have now is a complete and perfect revelation. And this revelation has come to us perfectly in the words and in the person of Christ because he has revealed these things in order that we might understand redemption. Uh, The purpose of this is to know how God rightly relates himself to people and how God rightly relates people to himself. And he actually does both of those. He rightly relates himself to people because it was necessary that he remain just while he justified sinners. And so Christ has, in a sense, not only reconciled sinners to God, but he's reconciled God to sinners he set him forth as a propitiation that in order that he might be just and yet justify those who have faith in Christ. And he has removed this barrier between us and him that we cannot approach him in our unholiness and in, un- in our unrighteousness and that he has paid this price and so he has reconciled us to him that we can now call upon him and we can call him Father and we can call him Savior and we can have fellowship with him. And so what has happened in the revelation that Christ has given is he has fulfilled all previous revelation. He has made those parts that might have remained unclear and that left even the prophets themselves wondering exactly what they meant when the Spirit spoke through them. That has been clarified. But also the words about what forgiveness of sins is and how it will come Uh, and how this one will bear the sins of many. This has been clarified and brought to our final uh, revelation in the person of Christ because he is our Redeemer. And so we begin, he begins his argument here by talking about the perfect revelation. We have a perfect revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, long ago... Many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. Now when he spoke to us by the prophets, we know that none of the prophets said all the truth. Uh, Isaiah, in his prophesying about the coming of the Christ and his prophesying about uh, the captivity of Israel, uh, needed Jeremiah to come and talk about of what happened during this time of captivity and to be the weeping prophet as he saw Israel or Judah carried off into captivity, but also he prophesied about a new covenant that would come in which the way they broke that covenant would be settled because a new covenant would come in which he would write his law on our hearts and he would forgive our iniquities and remember our trespasses no more. How this could be done at that time was not clear Uh, And so they spoke at many times and in various ways. Isaiah didn't say it all and Jeremiah didn't say it all. The prophets themselves, though they were taken by God, uh, often resisted this and were unsure. Jeremiah said, oh, I'm but a youth. I cannot do this. And God said, don't say I'm a youth. I'll put my words in your mouth and Isaiah said that I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God touched his lips with coals from the altar and told him to go to the nations. Jonah was told that he should uh, go and preach to Nineveh and Jonah refused to go. And God arrested his attention by throwing him into the sea and having a fish prepared to swallow him. And then when Jonah went and preached and God brought revival to Nineveh, Jonah was angry about it. And God asked him, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry. You kill my gourd. And so the prophets were taken by God. They preached his message. But we learn from the testimony of these uh, that they wrote themselves as to how imperfect they were and how little they actually understood about what God was doing which magnifies even greater the clarity of the necessity that they receive these things by divine revelation. We look at the book of Habakkuk and we see uh, the perplexity of Habakkuk about how he was to prophesy and what God was, was going to do. Uh, he looks around Israel and he sees what is happening there and he says, "O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear, I cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Saying God is idle about wrong. And then God answers him and says, I'm going to punish this people. I'm going to bring a fierce nation upon them, the Babylonians. And now he is even more perplexed. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, the Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are of pure eyes, and to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at the nations and are silent when the wicked swallow up the man who is more righteous than he? The prophet has a question about this. He doesn't understand the revelation that he has given. It's a true revelation. And the question he answers is a question that indeed is prompted not only by the situation, but by God's own prompting of him to ask such a question because further revelation will come in answer to that question. So Habakkuk goes on to lay forth his case. He thinks that it's an airtight case and Then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So when God answers my question, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to come back and I'm going to answer him again. And then God tells him what will happen. And we have that passage of scripture that becomes a revolutionary passage. The just shall live by faith. The person who is made righteous by faith, shall indeed live. And finally, Habakkuk has to come to the point where he recognizes that though he's been giving revelation and though he's been stating the truth and though God has revealed to him what is going to happen, (laughs) it has caused more perplexity than it has clarity. And he simply ends up this with a statement of faith that he must believe what God says no matter how in Congress it seems to him in his particular situation. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit of the nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers, he makes me tread on high places. So he has to come to a conclusion simply to believe God, to believe in God's justice, to believe in God's holiness, to believe in God's promises. And so the perplexity he has leads to a deeper resignation of of life and submission of heart and mind to the revelation of God. And so we could go on through the other prophets, showing the ways in which prophecy was given to them that perplexed them. And so the writer of Hebrews simply summarizes it In this way, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. Now, most of the translations will say he has spoken to us by his son, which indeed it is true. It is his son, but the writer is interested in setting forth the qualitative difference between speaking by prophets and then speaking by a son. And so Uh, The the translation literally is, yes, he's spoken to us by a son. Qualitatively, he spoke through other people uh, who were not of the same nature as God, though they were made in his image, they did not share his eternal nature. But now he's spoken to us by a son, which means now he's spoken to us by one who shares his eternal nature, one who is of his same essence. When Jesus claimed to be son of God and claimed God as his father, the Jews knew exactly what that meant. And in John 5, they complained about this and they began to make plots to kill him because he called God his father, making himself equal with God. The writer of Hebrews is picking up on that relationship of father and son to indicate that though he's spoken by prophets earlier, now he's speaking to us by a son. Now the two ways in which this prophecy is greatly clarified because he speaks to us by a son He speaks to us by Son because His Son, eternally generated by Him, is one who was with Him at the creation and was the agent through which creation was made. He was the one who was with Him at the time of the eternal decree and was the one for whose sake this eternal decree was made. Uh, He is the one who shares the very nature of the Father and shares all the knowledge that the Father has and is one in will with the Father. He is the one who is present at the, at the giving of the Ten Commandments. And he was the one that was present at the parting of the Red Sea. And he was the one who spoke through the burning bush. One speaking by a son has no kind of lack of clarity in his mind as to what should be said, as to what the Word of God means. And we see this testified to uh, throughout the, the New Testament. And the marvel that people had as to what Jesus, even as a 12-year-old, could do in the temple as he set forth questions that uh, were quite challenging to those who had studied the scripture all of their lives. But just two examples we have, uh, specifically we might say from Luke 4, when he is tempted uh, in the desert and Satan begins to tempt him and Jesus quotes scripture to him. And then Satan quotes scripture to Jesus and Jesus corrects his understanding of that and, and quotes a scripture that is in greater context and eventually uh, affirms it all with uh, you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve uh, S- satan quotes other scripture to him and jesus said it is said you shall not put the lord your god to the test And then as jesus begins his ministry he goes into nazareth Where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He had absolutely no hesitation. He had no uh, murkiness of mind about what the scripture meant and that it referred to him and exactly how it would work out in his own ministry. And then as he does the Sermon on the Mount, as he begins to speak about What the traditions of the Pharisees were and corrects them as he begins to talk about particular interpretations they gave of the very words of Scripture. And he clarified it and expanded their understanding of that. He shows himself to be an authoritative teacher, not speaking like the scribes and the Pharisees, but having absolutely no cloudiness of mind, no confusion at all about what the Scripture meant and how it related to him. If we look at what the prophet said, even the New Testament, as it talks about how the prophet spoke, we see that there was a clarity in their presentation because they said what what God had said, but the loose ends they could not put together. And so Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully But they were inquiring because the things they prophesied were confusing to them. What kind of person is this in which these things are going to be done? When will he come? But Christ didn't have any confusion about that at all. He knew he indeed was that person. He knew indeed what would happen to him. He knew what was written of him. He knew exactly how it would be fulfilled and when It would be fulfilled. And so in these last days, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, don't be confused, don't go back to the revelation that is partial, don't go back to the ceremonial law that was only prophetic and could never do what uh, it pictured should be done. Remember that in times past, he spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. Well, a second thing that we see in this is not only do we have a perfect revelation, uh, but this revelation is extended and is given. uh, Gives confidence to us because it is embodied within a perfect person. He is the perfect person not only to give us and complete this revelation, but he is the perfect person and the only person in whom the burden of revelation can be fulfilled. The revelation does not come simply to give us information to expand our knowledge about God. But the revelation comes in order to set forth the reality of the need for redemption and the person in whom redemption can come and the nature of this redemption. And so the revelation that comes in that way not only is explained more readily to us by this one who is a son, but it is accomplished in the person of this son because he is the only one who could do it. He is the perfect person. We see that he is God and he is man. The writer of Hebrews explains to us that he is the one who has been appointed to be the heir of all things. Behold, creation, when it comes to its culmination, when it is matured in all that it was created to be, this one who is the son will be its heir. He will inherit it. It is for him. There is no other one to whom it could be given. There is no other one who could rule over it. There is no other one who should be honored by it than him. He is its heir. He, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Father's decree to create, the Father's decree to bring into existence something out of nothing, the Father's decree to bring into existence other things that were temporal that would then be an ongoing reflection of his glory, including those that are made in his image. Through whom did he make this? It says, through whom he also created the world, meaning the Son. The Son has the same power, the same creative power, the same purpose in creation as the Father. The Son is the one who even carries out the decree of creation. And again, the writer is building this up because it is in the Son that the decree of redemption is carried out. Even as he has carried out the decree of creation and the one who will be the heir of creation. And then it describes him as he is in his own glory. This means his weightiness, who he is in himself. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. There is nothing about him that does not reflect the reality and the full essence of God. The radiance of the glory of God. Now this means that everything that God is in and of Himself, that weight that He has, all that He is, there is a glory that is intrinsic to it. And as this glory, as it were, expands from the fullness of God the Father, the Son is the precise radiance of it. He is the one that is manifest in this effulgence of glory that is set forth through the Father. So He is of the same essence. If you know the Son, if you know the glory of the Son, if you know the attributes of the Son, if you know the purpose of the Son, then you're entering into the mind of God the Father Himself. And even so it is of the Holy Spirit as we learn in 1 Corinthians 2. But He is the one who reveals all of these things to us because he is the one who knows the mind of God. So Father, Son, and Spirit, all of the same single essence of deity, performing certain functions within the the Godhead as this Trinitarian being with three persons, but each of them setting forth the reality of who God is in all of his perfection. So he is spoken to us by the Son, and this sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then he demonstrates his power even further. Not only is he the heir of all things and not only is he the one through whom he was created, but he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who is manifesting the as it were, the ongoing reality of the created order. The created order does not have any being in and of itself. It does not have intrinsic to it. It's a, an ability to duplicate itself from one moment to another. God is the only one who has intrinsic being. He is the only one who is self-existent. The universe is not self-existent. The universe was brought into being and it is sustained moment to moment by the same power that brought it into being. So Christ is the one who is upholding the universe by the word of his power. You take your next breath because Christ is having mercy on you to take your breath. The world is sustained in its rational order and and as a a manifestation of beauty and harmony and, and all of these things because it is the immediate product of the perfect power and rationality and purpose Of God as expressed in the way the son is maintaining it. This is the person who reveals God to us. And this is the person who brings about redemption. Now we know that he is God from all of these things. But we also know he is man because of the other things that it says about him. For example, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Where the writer talks about the purpose of God being one in which man that is created in his image would have the earth placed under him. Verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He's talking about man. What is man? That you're mindful of him. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. We are to subdue the earth. The earth was to be... Uh, the servant through which we would learn more about God and through which we would uh, become more and more master of these things over which he has made. But the fall, the fall brought about a change in that. The whole creation has now been subjected to vanity according to Romans 8. And now in Hebrews 2, he's saying that we do not yet see all things under his feet, meaning under the feet of his image bearers, man. But then what does he say? But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, repeating what he has said in chapter 1, In bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one. It just says all are of one. And I think he's saying all are of one nature. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus took upon himself our humanity. He took upon Himself every aspect of our humanity. He was made in our nature, sin only accepted, so that in this one person we have God who created the world, who sustains the world, who will be the heir of the world, who has a purpose for the world, and the one who has come into the world taking our nature, remedying those things that we were intended to do but could not do, even in the subduing of the world, and in relating to God through righteousness, We could do that no longer and so he came and took our nature in order to remedy all of those things that we had forfeited by sin. And he is the only person who can do this. He is the perfect person to do it. It is the unity of his person that makes it possible for the Lord Jesus Christ to restore to us all of those things that have been lost in the fall. Our relationship with God a path to righteousness and holiness, a path to fellowship with God, and a path to seeing an earth that is renewed and glorified and reflecting the true glory of God. So we have a perfect revelation in the Son. We have a perfect person to do this. And we are led now next to see the perfection of His work. Uh, The first one is revelation that we've seen. The second one, the perfect person, is incarnation. And now as we look at his work, we could call it purification. After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He made purification for sins. In other words, <clears throat> he made it right for God to forgive us. He made it right for God to declare us pure and holy in his sight. Whereas before we were impure. We were as an impure thing and he could have no fellowship with us. But he made purification for sins. 1 John chapter 1 says that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we're having fellowship with one one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, is cleansing us from all sins. There is this purification. If we confess our sins, uh, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is not compromising His nature to do this. He is faithful and just to do this. He is faithful to his decree, he is faithful to his nature, who is faithful to his purpose. And he is just in that he can forgive us without any compromise of his nature because the payment for sin has been made. Romans 3 that we referred to earlier, that he has set him forth to be a propitiation for our sins in order that he might be just and yet justify those who have faith in Christ. And so this perfect person is the only one who can bring about a perfect redemption. He is the only one who can make purification for sins. Now we see another, another affirmation of his humanity in the way that he does this. Because he must not only have an infinite excellence in him, in his person. His glory must not only match the glory of the God who is offended by our sin... Uh, his worship and his honor of God must not only be absolutely perfect because he himself understands all that there is about God because he is God, but it must make atonement for us, for humanity. He must do something that humanity had to do, and he could not do it if he did not take to himself our nature, if he could, did not uh, make it right to call himself our our brother. So he takes to himself our nature, and we have this indication here in these verses, when it says, <clears throat> After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having, having become. Well, what, what does that mean? Having become. Isn't he by his very eternal existence already superior to the angels? Isn't he because he is the eternally generated son already superior to the angels? Are not the angels created beings as the writer of Hebrews says at the end of the first chapter. He says are these angels not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. But here it says he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, he became this way because he is Savior. He was lifted up to this position because in his humanity he had completely obeyed the law of God and completely fulfilled the purpose of God and had completely executed the eternal decrees of God. Even as he quotes uh, uh, the verse, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That is in Psalm 2, in it begins by saying, now this is the decree. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Indicating there's an eternal beginning. In eternity, when the decree is made, he is declared as the one who is the son. He is eternally generated, he's eternally begotten by the son. Then he affirms his own, that he is father of him. I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. But then we, we're introduced into the incarnation This one who is a son, this one who is a party to the decree of God in eternity. Now it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. His humanity did not in any sense diminish the reality of his deity, but his deity did not compromise the reality of his humanity. And so in verse 6 he says, But of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now how did he get this kingdom? Why is this scepter of uprightness the scepter of his kingdom? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He came, he lived the perfect life, he honored the law of God, he honored righteousness, he hated wickedness in his life and as a result of that he is now enthroned not merely as a powerful ruler of the world, as a king on a throne to judge the world, but he is a redemptive king because he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness and he has made atonement, he has made purification and he is anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's us. We are his companions in his humanity. He has done the thing that we should do and this oil of gladness he has is an oil of gladness that is given to him. It is an eternal joy. It is an eternal blessedness that he himself has gained by his Obedience—it It is beyond anything that we could ever have attained, but it is that which he will give to us as the redemptive king. He is the perfect savior. He has done the perfect work. He has accomplished the perfect redemption. Now, this is not something that could have been done by any other person, but Christ himself, by his obedient life, as the incarnate Son of God has done it. We read in in Hebrews, the fifth chapter. In the days of his flesh, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He would save him from death. He would not save him from the cross. This was decreed. He would not save him from the necessity of dying for sin, but he would save him from death because death is the eternal verdict upon those who are not righteous, but Jesus paid that, and so he was, this is a statement about his raising him from the dead. He was heard because of his reverent submission. And although he was a son, this is, though he was eternally the son of God, And this is one of those mysteries that is far beyond us, stated in such simple language. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And this does not mean that there was ever a point at which he was disobedient and had to relearn it. It means that as a man, as a person who is taking our place, this person is one who every step of his pilgrimage here on earth learned more and more in his own soul and in his own spirit the kind of tension that he would experience, the kind of wrath that he would experience as he saw the wrath of man against him. He would say, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. He said that wrath is coming and oh, how I wish it were kindled even now. He learned obedience through what he suffered. The opposition let him know more and more of the sinfulness of man and the depth of the sinfulness and the depth of the rebellion and the depth of the hatred that people had toward God. And he was going to suffer for those sins. And this was something that was pressing upon his conscience as he prayed to be saved from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned the price of obedience. He learned what every step of obedience meant. He knew the difficulty of attaining righteousness through obedience. And then he reached a point where his obedience was perfect. And being made perfect, in verse 9, being made perfect, coming to full maturity in his obedience, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who Obey him. This is not something that could be done in any other way by any other person. We see in uh, chapter 9, verse 9, according to this arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We look at chapter 10, verse 1 for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of The true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But if we look down to verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer. This is the perfect redemption. This is the perfect work by his purification. But we see that his work also has led to what we would call a coronation. He is now seated on a throne. Verse three tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purifications for sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 8 tells us, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He has been crowned Lord of all. He has been crowned as the redemptive King. He is the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone has made redemption. And therefore, he has been given the right of judgment. We learn also then that he is the perfect redeemer because he has the right of adjudication. He sat down at the right hand. This is the right hand of power. This is the place from which the judgment will come. His work is finished. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We see in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through Uh, Thirty-three, where Jesus sets himself forth as the one who will be the final judge. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats... On his left. And then he renders judgment. On them. We see in John chapter 5. Verses 22 and 30. Jesus is claimed. To be the one to whom judgment. Has been committed. By the father. That all may honor the son. Just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son. Does not honor the father. Who sent him. And then in verse thirty, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. and then back to Hebrews and chapter nine verses twenty seven and twenty eight where this idea of sitting on the throne and of bearing of being crowned with glory and honor is brought to pass in Uh, the way in which we see his right to judge spoken of. Verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ being offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, that is by becoming an atonement for sin, he has done that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we have in this passage set before us by clear revelation, by the argument of the writer, one who is a perfect revelation of the purpose of God, of the decree of God, of the person of God. He is the one who is the perfect person in which the decree of redemption can be done because he is God and man in one person. He, and he has obediently submitted himself to The cross, and he has carried out that after having seen the cost of obedience. He became once being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And this leads us to an understanding of his perfect work. All the sacrificial system is done. He himself has borne our sin in his own body. He is made unto us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He alone is the Savior. He alone has borne the wrath of God for our for propitiation. And He is seated as a result of His work at the right hand of the throne of God. He is King because of the perfection of this work and because of the purpose of God in redemption is, can be fully executed by Him and the judgment of the world can be fully executed by Him and therefore He is the one who will come and be the final judge. The question then for each one of Us is, are we rightly related to Him? Have we seen that His work is absolutely necessary? Have we seen that we have no hope before God unless we have come into a faith relationship with Him, unless we have turned from our sin and recognizing that God is just in holding us accountable unless we have one who can plead for us, one who is our mediator. John tells us very clearly that Though so John is writing that we sin not if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. In Him alone, we can stand confident before Him at the day of judgment. In Him alone, we will be pronounced just and righteous. In Him alone, we have forgiveness of sins. In Him alone, we are sons of God and In him alone do we see his eternal glory. Pray that God may place these things upon our minds and upon our hearts, may press them upon our conscience to cleanse our conscience by the power of this redemptive work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has within it to... Show us with clarity your purpose to show us with clarity our dependence upon Christ. We thank you for the way in which it causes us to glory in him and to see the greatness of him as he is in his person as your son. And then as he is as our brother having taken our nature and then as as he is as our redeemer having taken uh, our guilt upon himself and our consequently the wrath that is due to us. Having conquered death and having been under the power of death, now he is glorified in his body and we too, knowing him, shall be glorified. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.